Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Reagan Robinson, who is a business development and information systems officer at the UCLA Technology Development Group, also known as UCLA TDG. Reagan is currently involved in the marketing, patenting, and licensing of UCLA's extensive life science technology portfolio, focusing on small molecule oncology and gene therapy technologies. In addition, Reagan is also responsible for the implementation and adoption of several information technology tools aimed at improving the efficiency of the office. With over 10 years of technology transfer experience, Reagan brings some of the industry's best practices to UCLA TDG to help UCLA continue being a worldwide leader in licensing and entrepreneurism. Before the UCLA TDG, Reagan worked at Columbia Technologies Ventures, also known as CTV, the Technology Transfer Office for Columbia University in New York City. There, he was part of the operations team and led a variety of projects, including organizing licensing compliance, improving the patent decision process, and programming an internal website for management reporting. Prior to this work, Reagan was one of the first fellows at CTV, helping shape their successful and widely cloned internship program. Reagan received his doctorate from Columbia University in biological sciences, studying the biophysical properties of several DNA repair proteins at the single molecule level under the mentorship of Dr. Eric Green. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Reagan. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Thanks again for taking part in the podcast. Let's kick things off talking about what led you from New York City all the way out to L.A. and UCLA. Well, um, I was at Columbia at the time. I was actually working full time at uh, Columbia Tech Ventures uh, under the guidance of Orrin Hertzkowitz there. And um, during my time at Columbia, I also um, worked with another individual, Brendan Rao. Uh, he was part of the team at, at CTV. He was recruited to become the Associate Vice Chancellor at UCLA TDG. Um, at the time, it was called OIPISR, and you can see why we changed the name to just TDG. And he recruited me out to UCLA uh, as the COO of the office to come and help try to you know get the office up and running and, and move it forward from uh, from where it was. Yeah, that's quite a change from New York City to LA, I would say. It was it was quite different. Obviously, I had to buy a car and that was a, a brand new thing for me. <laughs> oh, I bet. Recently, we talked to Jeff Jackson uh, from UC Santa Cruz. He was episode number three, and he explained to us about the UC system and that it involves 10 different campuses, yours as well as Santa Cruz, Berkeley, Davis, Irvine, Merced, Riverside, San Diego, San Francisco, and Santa Barbara, as well as five medical centers and three affiliated national laboratories. 
Can you tell us a little bit about how your office functions within the UC system? It would be interesting to see how it functions differently than than maybe Jeff's did at, at Santa Cruz. Sure. So at the at a very high level, uh, each campus operates independent of one another. Uh, we we do have connections with each campus um, because of this whole concept of the power of ten, as well as the fact that we're all the exact same legal entity. Uh, but when it comes to the day to day and some of the business decisions, um, we are we are very very different. Um, but we all still have to deal with the same laws. So being a UC, uh, we are a state institution. So we have a lot of uh, policy as well as California law that we all have to abide by. Um, We make our own business decisions as in like where we want to go, what our decisions with our faculty members are, you know, who we'd want to license to, um, you know, how we want to do our marketing, uh, what our patent strategy is. Each campus can have a, a different strategy uh, for it. And then, of course, like financials, when it comes down to it, you know, what do we think the value of our licenses are and, and how we do the negotiation for those licenses. Um, ultimately, because we are the same legal entity, we do still have to ultimately get uh, legal approval um, from UCOP for, from the Office of General Counsel, just like uh, Jeff's office does as well. We are a little bit disconnected or a little bit, not disconnected, but dissociated because of the structure of our office. Um, we're just a little bit bigger. So we have a little bit more, a few more resources that we're able to uh, uh, apply towards what we do in, in our office. Uh, we also are different in that we deal with uh, industry-sponsored research and material transfer agreements. Uh, some of the UC campuses have MTAs, some of the campuses also deal with sponsored research you know, from for-profit entities. But a lot of campuses actually have the for-profit entity sponsored research agreements being managed by the same group that does, say, um, you know, manage the federal grants uh, that come into the universities. Uh, ours, however, we have our ISR group um, that's part of our office. Uh, one of the biggest differences, though, I think, is the fact that our campus is the only campus uh, within the system that has a board um, that is fiduciarily responsible for our office. So they ultimately approve our budget, they ultimately approve like staffing um, and, and pay raises. Our CEO of our office, um, Amir Neighbor. He actually reports directly to the board. He has a dotted line to the the campus and the typical uh, vice chancellor of research uh, at UCLA, but also has a lot more responsibilities in trying to report to the board for um, UCLA TDG. Uh, And then of course, like in the weeds, uh, operationally our offices are, are much different. Each campus actually works very, very different from one another. Um, and that has a lot to do with either volume or some historical things about, you know, how certain aspects and certain operational processes have been taken over um, by the campus over the time, over years. So just going back real quick to that board that you mentioned, do you know the history behind that? How that that resulted in, in evolving and ultimately coming into place there at UCLA? Sure do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Sounds so- like there's a story there. There, there's there's a lovely story. Um, so there was a, a white paper that was put out um, by a, a business 
uh, faculty member here that was about the ecosystem of Los Angeles and the ecosystem of UCLA and highlighted how a tech transfer office really should be uh, supported and grown to try to um, better improve that connection, better improve the how UCLA is a, an, a, an integral part of the ecosystem in Los Angeles. We create tons of scientists every year. We graduate them, tons of publications, a billion dollars in tech and uh, federal grant research. There's a lot of great science that's going on at UCLA. And so how do we provide an opportunity of transferring that out to, to the industry and into Los Angeles? Um, there was a feeling that there was a difficulty of um, having the insight of what the industry is looking at, as in what what does you know what, our connection with industry, our relationship with industry, and industry being broad, as in almost any market, be it physical science, be it silicon, be it solar, be it life science, be it drugs, and the idea there was okay, so we needed to have some sort of um, board of individuals that were from industry that had that experience and had that connection and had that insight to help us better understand how we can uh, more effectively transfer uh, the technologies and the knowledge outside of UCLA through our office. So um, they actually part of um, Brendan's responsibility when they hired him uh, was to uh, work with UCLA administration at the time, the Vance Chancellor of Research was uh, Jim Economou, to actually um, pitch and propose and form a, a board that had this responsibility. Now, we didn't want to necessarily make it an advisory board only. We wanted to give it teeth to help us be able to um, spend our money appropriately uh, and put our money where our mouth was, be it in our salaries, be it within our patent budget, be it within our um, potential uh, development internally um, from our funding. So uh, I worked with Brendan and that's actually one of the reasons why I was brought out here as well, because I've worked with him for so long and had worked with him for uh, uh, so very well to help uh, the administration and Brendan to create this board and, and Lo and behold, we pitched it to the regents and it was approved and we formed that board. And ever since then, uh, which was about 2013 or 2014, we've had the board in place. Um, they have uh, changed and grown. There's been people that come on and off. Uh, we've had quite a few industry partners um, that are uh, fairly high VPs and uh, from industry, be it pharma, be it uh, life sciences. Uh, sorry, physical sciences um, that have been part of that board for pretty much the entire time now. Um, and we also do have um, significant insight from the administration. So we have people from DGSOM that's part of the board. We have an entire um, advisory faculty set board that is there to actually just observe, um, but also to make sure things are copacetic and going forward and that we're doing things um, by the book. Uh, when it comes to policy. And so um, that board's actually been extremely valuable. We, uh, the board was instrumental in uh, an, an item that we'll talk about a little bit later, which is dealing with uh, Xtandi. Um, but it also has been instrumental in 
um, advocating for our salaries and, and, and boosting that part of things, as well as the innovation fund um, that has been sig significant success uh, at UCLA. And it's only been going on for three years. Yeah, it sounds like it's had a really positive influence that board. And we'll, we'll get to that that innovation fund, because I think that that is something really unique. And it sounds like something that's been very important there at UCLA. Mm -hmm, definitely. So in terms of systems and things like that, too, I know from talking to Jeff that um, a lot of the campuses share uh, the same knowledge database of record. But I know he mentioned to me that um, during our interview that they were starting to switch away and come up with some of their own systems. I'm assuming you guys are probably doing something similar there as well in terms of coming up with some new systems and different systems and maybe working your way away from some of the UC systems. Yeah, so that's actually why I have half of my title, the information systems officer. <laughs> Um, I've been pegged at UCLA as being the person that's um, responsible for, for actually doing the migration. So, yeah, we, we do have a central database. It's a database of records called PTS. Um, just to give you a little bit of insight and your listeners a little bit of insight, when I showed up here in 2012, um, this is how old I am, uh, <laughs> it was still being run by green screens. Uh, I had not seen a green screen system since uh, early 90s, but Gosh. that one was green screen. Uh, by 2012, we did finally go into a, a GUI uh, user interface, but it looks like Windows 3.1. Again, tells you how old I am. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the, the system really isn't... Um, at the time, in the aughts, when they first created it and was using it lever and leveraging it significantly, it was... It worked. Um, there wasn't a lot of opportunities, a lot of options out there for the size and complexity that that you see is. That's changed. Uh, there are now plenty of third-party software that we can look at that are vendors that can take over that responsibility to, you know, and have you see shift away from being essentially a software house that things become uh, quite a, a behemoth in regards to the software that's managing and being used. However, not every campus has the resources or has it's been put to a couple of campuses. They don't have a Reagan um, at their campus to be able to migrate to a new system. Yeah. Um, but here at UCLA, we have started migrating to a, a new system. We, we opted to use uh, NTM for our, our stuff. We still have PTS as the database of record. But I'm actually in the middle of a project uh, to migrate and, and flip the switch, per se, whereby our NTM system will be our uh, database record for UCLA. Uh, San Diego's in the middle of that process as well. They're going to Wellspring. And other campuses are looking at those um, different systems as well to see what possible solutions might be out there for them. Uh, Jeff is on the same committee that I am. It's like a subcommittee of a committee. Um, internal to UC that is looking at how we're to improve the, the knowledge transfer um, system and, and ecosystem or processes that we have here uh, and throughout all of UC. I see. That makes sense. So can you tell us a little bit about how your office is structured? It, it sounds like, again, having talked using Jeff as a comparator, it sounds like your office is bigger and definitely structured differently than than his is. Yeah. Oddly enough, I, I kind of did the math a little while, like when I first got here. And if you 
if you take UCLA out of UC, like if you just count the number of people that are in our office, you know, we're like one of the top five largest offices in the United States in regards to tech transfer. Um, and that has a lot to do with how we're structured and, and the volume that we have. Uh, we first, so we have three primary groups. Uh, the first one's licensing, which is, you know, my, my uh, bias when it comes to it. Um, within the licensing group are the, the business development officers. Uh, I'm one of them. Uh, but and business development officers are very much the classical licensing officer that we've seen in other tech transfer offices in their structure. As in, we get disclosures, we're cradle to grave, we take the disclosure through patents, through marketing, through negotiations, all of those kinds of things. Um, there are two teams within the life science BDOs, uh, sorry, within the uh, licensing officers, one's life science, one's physical science. It's about 60, 40, uh, 60, life, 40, uh, physical. Uh, the life sciences, we've um, actually looked at it from organizing it by verticals. So my vertical happens to be small molecule oncology, which means that I work with a lot of different faculty members, some of which may be working with other BDOs within our office. The physical sciences, they actually are organized by faculty member. So they all, one faculty member works with one licensing officer. Uh, our BDOs are responsible for things like IP management, marketing, actual business development, negotiations, term development, and agreement drafting. So once I actually have the terms, I'm working with counsel internally to actually draft the licenses themselves and negotiate the legal language. Uh, and then the BDOs are supported by a variety of uh, very important operationally focused teams, such as the patent prosecution group, they're the ones that um, coordinate our communication between outside counsel uh, to our office. They're the ones that also create my bar log. So when there's actions, office actions, requests for examinations, those kinds of things, they turn into activities in my bar log that I use to manage um, my patent prosecution items. There's also the contract management team. They help us sometimes draft initial agreements or early agreements like letters of intent, as well as um, some parts of the team also negotiate IIAs and uh, the bailment agreements. We're actually looking on expanding the bailment agreements within UCLA. We also manage, they also manage the execution process. So once it's actually agreement has been met, they're the ones will send out the final version to be executed and signed and going down that direction. Our uh, internal counsel, uh, her name's Angie Kujak, who's been indispensable for our office. She is essentially an extension of UC's um, OGC. So we work through her with her to talk to the legal counsel that's at, up at UCOP whenever we need to, though that's actually becoming less and less and less because of how actually how great Angie's at uh, her job. We also have marketing uh, section. So there's two guys, one's for physical sciences, one's for life sciences, and they're the ones that are focused on the external marketing of our technologies. They help us create the NCDs. They help us create your decks and top tech decks and those kinds of things. They also manage our intern program. We have a graduate student intern program that's mimicked out of Columbia's um, program. And so we were able to um, they, they manage that program. We also have finance group. 
Uh, so they're the ones that help us deal with uh, things like the audits and the notices of default and um, the you know, keeping track of what um, you, know, all, you know, the money that's going around for our, our licenses and dealing with our licenses. And then, of course, we have HR and management that's shared amongst all the groups uh, here at UCLA. We also have, and so uh, in addition to the, uh, the licensing group, there's the industry-sponsored research group. Uh, within there, we have our officers. They're all JDs, and they can they negotiate the contracts as the for-profit sponsored research agreements, uh, and sometimes some really, really complex material transfer agreements. Um, there's also the associate group. They negotiate, say, turnkey sponsorship agreements. We have ones that have been going on for a long, long, long time, uh, as well as uh, amendments to the sponsored research agreements. Uh, and then also complex MTAs, say, with for other for-profit entities. Then we have coordinators that manage uh, intake. So we have a whole process where the faculty members have to you know, submit uh, sponsored research or material transfer agreement requests. Uh, and they also, that same group also manages our more turnkey MTAs like our UB MTAs, uh, our ad gene MTAs, those kinds of things. And then finally, uh, in addition to the licensing and sponsored research agreement group, uh, there's the new ventures agreement group, which is the group responsible for uh, managing the UCLA Innovation Fund. Uh, which is a $3 million fund to help further technologies uh, internally, as well as providing uh, networks and uh, resources to our startup and uh, the startup ecosystem out there. Yeah, it sounds like a, a really large office. Can can you talk a little bit more about that UCLA Innovation Fund? We mentioned it a, a bit earlier. It sounds like that that's a really great bridge to be able to maybe take some early stage technologies that really maybe you're not really sure where they're going to go or, or they need a little bit more proof of concept and maybe give them some more funding to kind of develop that a little bit further. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm lucky that I was here when we first started it. So, um, so it was something that was contemplated when we, we formed the board as in there needed to be a way to be able to keep the technologies in house further or for longer periods of time to further develop it, to, to make them, more robust, more proof of concept, more de-risked is the term we use a lot. Um, and that's, uh, that's what this fund has is, is been made for. We were lucky that um, about three years ago, uh, the state of California passed a, an innovation and ecosystem bill. I can't remember the exact term for it. But what it resulted was that each one of the campuses received $1 million, including the office of the president. So it was $11 million uh, bill. And each campus had this $1 million to help support innovation somehow, some way. Most campuses, in fact, all the other 10 campuses that got money, uh, they supported it through education. And so they created new educational programs, they created new uh, like minors in uh, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, those kinds of things. And they, they work really nicely and it, it fit exactly what they were hoping to do is grow that education, grow that uh, that support. We took that money and did something a little different, and that is we decided to do, um, you know, in, and create this innovation fund. And it's exactly as you kind of put it out. Basically, you know, we have technologies that our faculty are creating, inventions that our faculty are creating, and it's it's agnostic to 
uh, space, right? We don't worry about it being a, a therapeutic or a drug or a method. We have like two tracks right now. One is uh, therapeutics and the other one is med device. And we work with our faculty members and we work with the schools to identify technologies that may be ripe for needing a little bit of extra money uh, so that we can further develop internally to de-risk the asset, de-risk the technology. Further developing, it means looking at it from a perspective of what can about $200,000 do to help de-risk the asset. That's really great. That's impressive. How did you guys grow up from 1 million to 3 million though? So when we had that first million dollars, um, we were able to, and mind you, we, we so we used all that first 1 million um, on like five projects um, at the very beginning. Of those five projects, we showed significant success ah. uh, from those projects themselves of being able to engage with industry, engage with the campus, engage with the, the schools themselves. And it became to the point where uh, even some of the schools were not really jealous, but they were like, wow, this is really a great idea. We, we should you know, start putting more eggs into the basket. And so um, the chancellor is now extremely supportive of it. And again, with the support of our board, encouraging more um, additional money as, as years have gone by to include into this this grant or this innovation fund. So it's um, we, we just haven't spent all the money, but we basically have gotten about a million dollars each year included into the fund. And we just, we've been able to continue to do that. They're trying to figure out ways of making it evergreen, um, sure. but that will require about 40 to $50 million. So. Yeah. A lot, a lot more money than what you have now, but that's still awesome. And it's a great example of, you know, how even, you know, a million dollars is a lot of money, but still, even with that amount of money, you were able to take it and, you know, with those five projects that you mentioned, really turn it into, you know, significantly de-risk those projects that they were ultimately successful. So that's a great story. Yeah, one of the texts, and this is one of our happiest of stories, is um, so we were able to license a, a hair therapeutic um, out, and it was supported by the Innovation Fund. It was, I think, project number four um, that we, we funded. And that one has gone to a company that um, is formed that was a $300 million Build a buy company um, that's backed by a, a huge pharmaceutical company. So we were able to really, you know, highlight and it, and it's a good chance that this thing is going to work because we did such a great job of de-risking it. Um, and it's you know the, the financials coming back to the university are, are quite substantial. So we were very excited to see where where that entire um, asset goes. That's um, that's really great. It's really great to hear. Um, switching gears a little bit, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary for Baidol in December here. Can you reflect on the impact you think that ACT has had on innovation in the U.S. and particularly on universities in the United States? Sure. Um, one of the biggest things, I think, is that the, the ACT has really helped universities stop being or, or grow from being just like the infamous ivory white tower kind of concept. They're no longer just that. They're integral nodes um, within the, at the national level, at the state level, the local level, hyper-local level, um, and dealing with the ecosystems around it. Um, UCLA, for example, is just, you know, it's grown so 
much as being a, an integral leader within the ecosystems at um, within Los Angeles. Um, and that has a lot to do with the, the ability of the tech transfer offices themselves being a node and, and being in existence and being able to do what we can do. And there's that, that act allows for the tech transfer offices to be able to exist. Um, I know that the act has caused me to have a job for over 15 years and that's, you know, kudos for me, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it, it's it's been extremely valuable for innovation. You know, there's data that's out there that before the act, there was like no drugs, no transfer, no nothing. And then afterwards, there's been you know quite a lot of drugs, quite a lot of innovations, tons of patents, tons of companies that are being able to add value into the, the, the economy. And that's not just from a, a numbers perspective either. It's also the students themselves, like the graduate students and the postdocs being able to, you know, get their education and then go to job and add more to the, the economy, not just from a, a dollars perspective, but from also from a knowledge perspective, growing the science, growing the knowledge, body of knowledge that's out there. And that that's, uh, you know, uh, obviously the, it takes a, a village to be able to do all of that. And, uh, you know, we like to look at it from the tech transfer office being, really instrumental in helping kind of grease those wheels or being able to connect those individuals and connect those companies and connect those technologies to help build up those ecosystems and build them out. And without the act, the the tech transfer offices just don't exist. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What about if you could advocate for any changes to buy Dole? What do you have any that you would be strongly in favor of? Uh, honestly, you know, given from my experience and given where I've been, um, the biggest change that I would suggest it, it would be to get rid of uh, the margin rights. That that term in the the act has just been such a uh, a misnomer, a, a confusing part of what it means and, and what it can be used for, and, and why it's even there. And I mean, I, I remember in the late '90s and early aughts, uh, you know, it was just a it was a, a, a poltergeist almost. And even in negotiations of licenses that I've had just five years ago, it was still a, you know, a, a bo- like a boogeyman that was used as part of the negotiations um, uh, for the universities. And, but the end result is it's, I think it's just a, a lot of miseducation or uh, misconceptions about what it can be used for and, and why it's there. And so maybe, you know, since we haven't, uh, I don't know of any instances where it's been used or it's been evoked. And so maybe we don't need it, you know, and right now it's being used as a, again, a negotiation tool by some, um, some within the political climate as a means to try to, you know, help, you know, the help the, the citizens of the U S and deal with the, the drug pricing and all of that. And, and it's just, it's tough. Yeah, that's a huge issue right now, because I think there have been s- several senators, I think Senator Sanders, Senator, Senator Warren in particular, who've suggested using marching rights to help uh, control drug pricing. And really, that I think is a misleading statement, because really, that's not what marching rights is all about. So I think you do have a point. I think people have misconstrued it. And, and there's a lot of um, 
misunderstanding about what marching rights actually means. And and it's now in the middle of this uh, coronavirus pandemic, it's coming up in a slightly different context, not only drug pricing as it has been for the last, I think, you know, a couple months, but now in terms of, you know, if there's a cure for a coronavirus, you know, depending on who comes up with it, if it's a university, you know, there might be, you know, compulsory licenses, margin rights, things like that. So um, I think you're right. There's a lot of confusion uh, about exactly what margin rights means. Agreed. So let's talk a little bit about inventions and disclosures and patent litigations. How does your office vet disclosures and and do you file fully drafted provisionals, cover sheets or or something in between? So uh, for the provisionals, we basically try to file somewhere in between. We have realized because of how um, SCOTUS has been ruling and federal appellate court and even what's been going on in the PTAB, that we, we really do need to make sure that our patent applications are, our provisional patent applications are robust provisional patent applications. So we do try to at least uh, have about 10 claims per provisional application. And especially if we know that the technology is going to be one of our more important ones or a big deal, um, such as it being novel composition of matter, we'll definitely uh, have counsel or outside counsel draft a, a full provisional a full patent application for that provisional. And we, we, we know that it's going to be more and more imperative as time progresses to have that robustness in the specification, that robustness in the, the claim set in order just to be able to show enablement um, back to the priority date. Um, we still obviously, because of the nature of our business, we still will sometimes file a quote unquote cover sheet provisional where there's not very much but maybe like the publication or the poster or something along those lines. Um, and that has, you know, everything to do with, you know, sometimes there's just going to be a public disclosure that we need to, to file before. Um, but we, we know that those are the riskier ones when it comes to uh, continuing to, um, just, you know, convert them and, and support them from a, a patent application standpoint. I think as long as you're realistic on that, and I think you hit the nail on the head, particularly in the life science space, uh, 112 written description enablement is is an issue and a cover sheet provisional may not suit that, you know, those requirements meet those requirements. So as long as you're, you understand that going forward, it's one thing. But when you're talking, like you said, a small molecule case uh, or sometimes a, a an a-, a therapeutic antibody, you really have to try and flesh that provisional out if you have the t- luxury of time as best as possible, because that, in my mind, is becoming a bigger and bigger issue, particularly in the U.S., is written description and enablement in life sciences. So I, I agree with you. Yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's going to be, I think, going to be even more imperative as time progresses that we are able to show that this is a real thing and not just like we're just making stuff up. Exactly, and, and that, that's that's enablement. Yeah, um, and then to your to your question about how we vet them, um, so we and that that's in conjunction with you know taking that risk when we have the cover sheet provisionals. Uh, we actually have a process in house where we have a, it's like an eight or nine question matrix um, that has scoring. But we basically score each one of the technologies that we have when we make a decision. And that decision sometimes can even be during when we 
um, initially file it to a provisional or even when we convert it or even further down the line when we go into national phase. Uh, the matrix has questions like, you know, what's the market size? What's the opportunity? You know, what are the competition? Uh, you know, how supported is it internally? You know, what kind of funding is there? Uh, is there uh, feedback from the market, feedback from uh, potential licensees? Have we had confidential discussions about the technology? Um, and all of those are added together in, in our little matrix to kind of give us uh, kind of a, a subjective, more than anything, kind of low, medium, high of uh, should we continue on and, and prosecute the and, and supporting the patent application. Um, we're very lucky that right now um, our office is in kind of a, uh, not large S, but a, you know, kind of a, a space where we're want, willing to invest in IP and, and take risk on IP that may be a little bit early on. And, you know, but we know that that is a pendulum and it will eventually shift the other way and we'll have to be a little bit more of tightening our belts. And so we've put in those processes already uh, at this point to be able to say, this is why we're not going to file or this is why we're going to continue uh, to file the patent applications uh, and support them. So do you use that same metrics all the way throughout? So let's say you're getting ready to enter the national stage for a PCT. Do you go back to that matrix and look at it as well? Is that carry from the beginning when the disclosure comes in all the way through? Yeah, so um, we take what was the matrix of the, uh, say, at the PCT conversion, and then when we go into national phase, we look at that, and then we have additional questions um, that are related to it basically increasing the bar of our evaluation. So, like, an additional question is, is it licensed? And so, if it's licensed, then is the licensee in good standings? You know, so even questions like that start to pop up um, for our technologies when we go in the national phase. So it's, it's still just a, a larger uh, matrix of questions that we're looking at uh, from the evaluative uh, perspective. If it's not licensed, um, we do sometimes will file national phase um, applications at risk. And a lot of those times when we do that, it is it's pretty it's a pretty big deal, right? Because that's going to be expensive. But more importantly, we have to justify it. We justify it yeah. in a transparent manner via a committee meeting. So we have our patent prosecution meeting. Uh, that's our team-based meeting and where we have to explain to our peers and our boss why we decided and why we think we should continue on um, at risk for that technology. And that's, that's a, it's a big bar. Oh, yeah. The cost for our national stage filing is tremendous. But I like that idea of a valuation matrix because then it seems like every disclosure, every filing gets treated in a similar manner. So you have some some semblance of consistency. I mean, they're not each one is unique. It's like kids, right? Each one's unique on their own and you can't really compare the two, but it gives you at least some guidance to kind of have some level of consistency, which I'm sure the faculty and inventors appreciates, too, because they know everybody is getting the same kind of consideration. Exactly. So how about litigation? Have you had much litigation? Is your office, um, I'm assuming the UC system is known to enforce their patents. So you're, you're not necessarily adverse to it, but um, I know it's something that 
no university is really particularly fond of. Yeah, and I think that just it still fits the UC's mentality. We're not particularly in fond, fond of it. Every time that a licensee has um, initiated uh, some sort of litigation, we've always joined voluntarily. So that's been nice because that, and I I know that's the truth because that's what I have to say to my licensees yeah. when I'm negotiating licenses because yeah. um, it's a it's a it's a concern. Um, I think the change that I see a lot lately is just the growing appetite around um, the risk of doing it without it being licensed and, and, and trying to support it or trying to litigate it without a licensee to, to bankroll it. Yeah. It's expensive. That, I think is, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's, 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 it is a very expensive. And so I think our office or UC in general, actually in our office also is very, is starting to be a little bit more open to uh, litigation of our, of our, of our portfolio without a licensee in charge. Um, an example that's out there is with UCSB. They're litigating one of their, I think it's their LED, one of their LED technologies, um, and they've got an interesting aspect of where they're leveraging not just the um, patent offices, but also they're leveraging the um, the import um, office, basically. Oh, ITC. Yeah. Yeah, the ITC. Yeah. Oh, so they've got that going on at the same time too. Exactly. And it actually seems like it's been way more effective through ITC than the the turn and burn of going through um, litigation in the court system. Yeah. And ITC, so it tends to go a lot faster and, and it's not really as expensive as, as district court litigation, but it can be, depending on the circumstances, you can have the district court litigation stayed pending the ITC matter. And um, that can be helpful because the ITC does move a lot more quickly than than district court. But it, mm-hmm. then it gets complicated if you've got those proceedings going on. And let's say you, you have an IPR going on at the same time. And so then the cost just starts escalating uh, beyond one's wildest imagination, as they say. Yep. So very true. So I know you've done a lot of licensing. Um, reflecting on some of your past licensing transactions, um, now knowing having the benefit of hindsight, we'll say, what would you have done differently, um, knowing what you know now? Uh, yeah. In one of my very first uh, negotiations, um, it, it really was. To be honest, it seemed to be very combative. Looking back on it, it was a very combative conversation, and it, I, it was just surprising to me that you know you'd be so combative. What it boiled down to, though, was you know I, I really think if I would have asked the right questions or if I would have listened a little bit more intensely into what they were saying and what their real concerns were, we would have been able to actually find out eventually, or which we did, find out what the real problem was, what, what the real concern was. And so basically we turned our, just spun our wheels for two months, like being combative in our, in our discussions when we really could have been able to just say, Oh, you know, Oh, that's really a problem. Oh, that's actually not a problem for us. And then as soon as we figured that out, it, it went, you know, very smoothly from that point on, but it was just, so strange of a, a very first one of a, my first negotiations. And so I, I took away from that as I really keep my ears open and, and keep my, my eyes open about what their real problem is and try to get them to say and talk more about what they're looking at the, 
and, and figuring out what the real issues are. And that's really good advice, not only for licensing transactions, but just life in general, right? Because sometimes I think, you know, we spend a lot of time talking and maybe not enough time listening, whereas if we listened a little bit more, maybe things aren't quite what they thought they were, or they're more easily resolvable than maybe what we think because we're so busy trying to talk. So I, I think that's a really good point. How about, I know your office has had, and you've alluded to it, some really successful um, inventions come out of them. Can you share some of your big success stories with us? Sure. Uh, so our one of our very first uh, big successes is something called the GDC, which stands for Guglielmi Detachable Coil. Uh, basically, it helps uh, fix aneurysms inside of brains. It's got, you know, kind of this metal tube that has a metal ribbon in it, and the metal ribbon fills into the aneurysm uh, inside the head. It was, it's very, very simplistic. It happens to be fragile. So they had to make a whole bunch of them just to be able to use one. But it was so straightforward and simplistic um, that it quickly became the gold standard for aneurysms. And it's used worldwide and still used to this day. There's been even additional improvements that are, uh, or that UCLA has created that just never took because it was just so straightforward um, to, to fix it using a GDC. And so that one's been a very, uh, very good one for us. And I, I, the reading I did on it, it's treated more than 500,000 patients worldwide. And when you think about the fact that it's hard to catch a cerebral aneurysm, the fact that it's been used to treat that many patients worldwide is absolutely incredible. And that saved that many people's lives. Yeah, it was interesting as some of the history of it we saw like how much time could pass uh, with when someone started showing the signs of aneurysm before they needed to have the, the coil, and it really helped extend that that time frame of of the therapeutic window is what it's called, um, and that that was really quite um, helpful for us, and we were it was very awesome to see. Yeah, great invention. How about some other ones? Well, that one has been really nice. Uh, probably our biggest success is Extandi. Uh, so Extandi is a prostate cancer therapeutic for castration-resistant prostate cancer. Um, and it's now the, the gold standard for CRC prostate cancer. Um, and it's been it's a first-line treatment. And we, UCLA... Uh, we actually sold our royalty rights uh, to Royalty Pharma. That's a public um, announcement that came out, you know, back in 2013, I think, maybe 14, um, where we sold it for $1.14 billion. Um, UCLA basically still hasn't spent that money. Um, and about <laughs> half of it had to go to uh, HHMI because they were supporting uh, Dr. Right. Charles Sawyers, who's one of the inventors. Um, but you know, hey, that's fine. Um, so that that's a, that was a big success for us, and it's one of the reasons why um, the the board was formed, the organization has shifted, and you know why the university is willing to support us uh, more than ever in our operations. That's an amazing and home run. I mean, I would probably even call it a grand slam to use a baseball analogy. That's quite quite the success story, I would say. Yeah, it's, uh, and 
the the best part about it is it's never going to be repeated. <laughs> yeah, that's it's hard so to like, repeat uh, those those types of things. But I think you have an, another prostate cancer drug, don't you? Um, that's been a pretty good success story as well. Yeah, so right on the heels of Extandi came out uh, Erlita, and so it is uh, another um, prostate cancer therapeutic. It is a little bit more akin to Zytiga in regards to the therapeutic modality. Um, it, it needs progesterone as part of the, the drug treatment, um, but it is a, a yet another castration-resistant um, therapeutic. It has a different mechanism of action to affect the um, androgen receptor. Um, and whenever I talk to my my clinicians that, are, that I work with, they actually typically will prescribe Erlita before they prescribe Extandi uh, because it just seems to actually be more effective um, at the end of the day. So. Hopefully that one will, uh, it's chugging along, but it is, you know, second fiddle to Xtandi right now. That's not a bad second fiddle, quite honestly. You've had had three really amazing success stories, and I'm sure you have some more as well. But um, how about, we talked about success stories at your office. How about challenges? Uh, What would you say some of your office's biggest challenges are? Um, I would say the the biggest challenge is uh, the startup ecosystem. Um, so, uh, in my opinion, tech transfer offices are very integral to the, the startups um, and the ecosystem that are around the universities. We're integral with it and dependent on it at si- simultaneously. And so, the ecosystem goes. The ecosystem goes to tech transfer office at UC or in Los Angeles. The entire city is basically dominated by one industry, and that's uh, you may have heard of it. It's called Hollywood. They're uh, kind of big, yeah, maybe, yeah, possibly, maybe. yeah. <laughs> and nowadays, also like IT is starting to be a bigger and bigger deal as well. But you know, those are apps and Bird and you know those kind of things. Sure. The biotech industry you know, ecosystem is still very small. It, you know, beyond outside of Amgen, which was a huge, obviously a big pharma, um, and then we've had a couple of other successes that are coming out of, of Los Angeles that are related to biotech, like Kite being bought by um, Celgene, I think it is. That's very valuable, and it, it's showing that the ecosystem's growing, but it's still very, very small, and it's going to take a long time for it to grow to a substantial size. And the reason why is probably because of some of the other challenges. One of those other challenges being um, the hiring and retention of individuals. So we can form these companies uh, and even in tech transfer offices ourselves, we can hire individuals, but a lot of times we're just not gonna be able to get the right kind of people or the high quality or the high caliber kind of people. Um, and what I mean by that is like you from the startup side of things, you want people that have had a lot of you know experience in failing in biotech. Well, we just don't have that. There's failures aren't done yet. You know that most of them will end up going up to San Francisco or down to San Diego. Um, and then same thing with tech transfer offices. We UCLA is the biggest tech transfer office in Los Angeles. We have our cousins and, and sisters from the other ones, such as like uh, USC and, and um, Toronto Cedars and City of Hope. But those offices are two, three people big. And so they're, it's really hard to find 
uh, individuals that have had, you know, 10, 12 years of experience in tech transfer within Los Angeles. So we have to either import them or train them ourselves. Yeah. One of the frustrations Jeff expressed with Santa Cruz was the extremely high cost of living down there. And I'm assuming it's the same there in LA. It's probably similar. Um, And he said that's really hard to attract people just giving a typical tech transfer office budget and then just the cost of housing and, and, and other things he said was a real, made it a real challenge to hire and then retain people as well. Yeah. It's cost of living here is while it is lower than uh, Jeff's problem being close to Silicon Valley, it's still quite a problem here in Los Angeles in order to be able to afford like and buy a home. Um, you basically need to live about an hour away from UCLA. Yeah. And that that can really put a, a, a big uh, negative on the quality of life here. Yeah, your commute is known to be pretty, pretty awful out there. I mean, I live in Chicago and it's bad. Grew up in New York. That's bad, but LA is even worse. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about women inventors and entrepreneurs. Does your office or does the university have any programs that encourage or assist women inventors and entrepreneurs? That's a really hot topic going around university tech transfer now. So curious if you guys do anything there. We unfortunately don't uh, do anything that's specific for women inventors and women entrepreneurs. Um, I I am very, very lucky or UCLA is very lucky that we have uh, very entrepreneurial faculty, and I'd say about 40% of them are female uh, faculty members that are the, the entrepreneurial kind. That's really good. And then on top of it, it's not um, a lot, you know, typically there's a lot of like the kind of the older school or the, the uh, faculty members that have been there for 10, 15 years. A lot of our more entrepreneurial faculty members have been at UCLA for like five. And so we're really um, seeing them uh, grow and expand their research and being able to work with them and pivot with them to help them better answer the problems um, that are out there from the industry, just from our knowledge and insight uh, from our conversations with companies. So it's, it's been um, really quite rewarding to be able to help that to help that ecosystem, especially um, trying to grow um, the women faculty members and entrepreneurs here. What about organizations like Autumn? Do you think they provide value and do you find them helpful in your everyday role? So I do. Um, but in all honesty, the reason why I do is I'm part of Autumn. I, I'm one of the cabinet members of Autumn currently. I'm a cabinet member for metrics and surveys. So I, I'm a huge advocate for what Autumn does uh, for tech transfer offices. Um, from the perspective of like of the UC, uh, I think that, you know, my office has benefited quite substantially from uh, the, the tools and the data and the information that's been provided and educational resources provided by Autumn. Uh, we actively utilize the information that's in the licensing surveys database to help us uh, look at our peers and look at other institutions that we're trying to achieve or trying to, to better ourselves, even with us being so large as we are. Um, and that, that's been really valuable to kind of show because, uh, you know, going back to our board, they're from other industries. They're not from tech transfer. And so they don't know 
who's really good or what's a really good value. Like how many licenses should you do? How many disclosures should you get? Um, and so we're able to kind of look at that data and say, here's our peers and this is what they're doing. And this is what we can do to try to even improve ourselves more. Um, and so that's been really very, very valuable. From my perspective, you know, I, I've um, partaked a lot of uh, the professional development part of Autumn to the point where, you know, I, I know a lot of the directors in the other institutions and, you know, actively work with them on a variety of projects. And it's been extremely valuable to have that, that development and that connection. Yeah, I have to say, as a, an attorney kind of looking in from the outside, when I go to the Autumn National Meeting, the sense I get is that the national meeting in particular, the sense of camaraderie and just kind of the communal coming together is really beneficial from people from all over, from all universities, whether it's the U.S. or worldwide. And that's the network and the benefit of the connections that I think Autumn provides. And that's why it's a real shame what happened this year with the national meeting getting canceled. And and now Central, the Central meeting's been canceled. You know, hopefully East and, and West will go on. We'll see. But but I think it's played a tremendous role, again, as an attorney kind of looking outside in for watching the effect that it's had on people in universities. I, th I think it's been a tremendous positive. How about your view on credentialing? Do you think it makes a difference? I, I look at credentialing as, especially since our industry is getting more and more robust and there's more and more individuals that are becoming part of the industry that I think credentialing is going to become more important. Um, you know, here at UCLA, you know, as I mentioned, we have a, a hiring, we have our trouble hiring people and, and retaining those individuals. And so a lot of times when we're hiring, you know, the, the roles, the people that are applying for the jobs, you know, we're, we're not a hundred percent certain if they even know what tech transfer is. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely not transferring from, a tape to a CD player, right? So it's uh, it can be difficult to ascertain that kind of stuff uh, from just a resume. And I think it's um, having the credentials such as like RTTP can really help kind of like lift someone up uh, above the, the noise of saying, hey, I actually do know what this stuff is. I know what we're talking about. I uh, have the, you know, the education. I've had the experience. I've had these classes, this stuff that says, I know what I'm talking about when we're talking about um, trick transfer. And I know the jargon, I know the language, I know what it's going to entail when you do the job that I do. Um, I, I think it's going to become more important for tech transfer offices to set, start actually saying that those credentialings are important and required for jobs, especially like mine, uh, being a BDO. I know. At, at some point in time, I, you know, it's really going to be very more more imperative than ever to have um, that credentialing. Yeah, the more people I talk to, the more uh, I hear similar kind of views on that, that it's becoming more and more important. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if it, it does become more of a requirement in offices going forward. So I'd like to end the podcast by always asking if you could have three wishes for UCLA, um, a genie in a bottle, whatever, what would those be? I'd say that my 
first one would be to have a, a more robust life science startup ecosystem. Um, I was very fortunate to see uh, the, the life science ecosystem start growing when I was at Columbia and how it's just exploded. Um, there's so many startups and so many individuals that are bouncing from company to company and being part of that system, that it's a career now in, in New York City. And that's, uh, I love to see that in Los Angeles. It's going to take a long time, yeah. um, but you know, I, I really would love to see that. Um, the second thing would be uh, commute. So, you know, that's one thing to be able to hop on a train to be able to get to point A or from point A to point B. But here in Los Angeles, you know, Pasadena with Caltech, it's a fantastic tech transfer office. It's a fantastic university. Uh, it took me two hours to get there. So, uh. you know, I'm not really, you know, antsy to go out to, to Pasadena. And if I do, yeah. then... I need to make sure I have a lot of other stuff uh, going to do on out there. there. Yeah, because you yeah. lose pretty much half your day by the time you exactly. go there and back. Yeah. And then the other thing would be public transit. You know, so LA has got a huge plan of how to improve the public transit, growing the public transit, and building the public transit. It actually outpaced their their projections for what for ridership um, of the public transit system here uh, when they opened up one of their new train lines. But at UCLA, there's still not a train, still quite far away. And so that means that everybody and their mother has to drive in. And that's Ugh. so having public transit options, I think it would be like ultimately fantastic. Um, and it, it's going to be there, but maybe 20 years from now. It's going to take a while. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, Reagan, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Sure. They, they can easily send me an email at reagan.robertson. That's R-A-G-A-N dot Robertson, R-O-B-E-R-T-S-O-N at T-D-G dot U-C-L-A dot E-D-U. Great. Thanks so much again, Reagan. It's been a real pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.